this week, we are fundamentally spiritual beings. And for me, that's just something that really needs to be present all the time in order for me to be the best that I can be in the world. And so my career journey has taught me that really deeply more than anything else. And this podcast is just the most explicit form of that (laughs) just so far. For our last episode of the season, we're doing something a little different. I'm sliding into the guest seat to talk about my personal journey with faith, hope, and how exploring spirituality has changed my life. And who better to hop into the interview chair than our episode eight guest, my husband, Dave Fodiatis. That's right. I talked to Marin about her search for a faith tradition that reflects all of who she is. She shares her love of sacred spaces as places to feel big feelings and ask life's big questions. And she reflects on the origin story of this podcast and her faith in millennials as a resilient, creative, spiritual generation with the capacity to change the world. And we're giving you our whole unedited conversation. Except for, you know, a a few ums and ahs. Because how do you stay optimistic about the future when you feel jaded by the fate of the world? You find a little faith. I'm Marin Smith. And I'm Dave Fodiatis. And this is Keeping Faith. Faith is located on the traditional territory of the Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabek people in Hamilton, Ontario. And I also make my home on Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabek territory in Hamilton, Ontario. Well, let's just get started. And I wanted to start by asking you a question that you begin every interview with, which is what gives you hope right now? I think for me, an incredible source of hope and joy has been gardening (laughs) recently. (laughs) So we moved to a new house in January. And for the first time in our adult lives, we have actual garden space. And so we ripped out our front yard and decided to put in our own veggie garden. And, um, some of that was a result of what has been happening in the world right now and in in this time of social distancing during COVID-19 we we figured that we're going to be home for a while especially over the summer because we're usually really big travelers and um and so I think that 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 was the motivation to put in the veggie garden because we thought we'd finally have like time and space to do that and it has just been the most life-giving thing Um, I think there's something about nurturing and cultivating life in a time where you feel helpless, where in a time where you feel like maybe you can't contribute to, um, helping fight this thing that finding a space in our life where we could just nurture life has felt really important to do. Um, and I also think another sort of side benefit of it that's been really joyful has been that 
it's also providing a source of joy for our community. Like, it's neat to see how much our neighbors are watching us do it and interested in that development. And also just people on the street passing by and asking questions and showing interest in that has been really, really nice. So it's been a way to connect with people as well. Even in a time where you have to keep your distance, we can still talk over the garden fence. And so that's been really, I think, important. Um, And I also think, again, in this time of social distancing where we can't travel or we can't, you know, access some of the parks or trails that we normally would to connect with nature, it's been a really important way to feel that connection to nature. And I I think um, in some ways this is a way that feels like it's giving back to nature, not just consuming nature, not just taking it in. It's a way that in the little patch of earth that is our house, we can create space for nature to flourish, create space for um, nature to grow and can support it in, in doing that. And there's something that feels really generous and like life giving about that too. So gardening has just been such a joy seeing seeds sprout it planting things and having the anticipation that they're going to come up it makes growth still seem possible during this time and and that's been really special yeah yeah that's been beautiful to watch i know (laughs) yeah i'm curious as you say that this time that we're in has perhaps caused this view of hopefulness in something like life-giving and seeds but I know that that's also been a part of hope and faith for you for a long time. Can you think of um, a story where that trend has been a part of your experience with faith in the past? Where nature has been a part of? Sorry, yes. Yeah, I would say that like nature has been a, was a very important part of my family's sense of spirituality when I was a kid. I don't think that it would have ever really or it wasn't ever really directly identified as a spiritual act except maybe once or twice where I think my dad talked about how going for walks on Sunday mornings was his version of church when we had a dog Hmm. Um, that he felt like that was his way to connect with something bigger Um, but that was something that we actively all participated in as family. And there was a lot of ritual around going out into nature and participating with that. So we had, you know, these weekly hikes that we would do with our dog. Every summer we went camping. We'd go up to Lake Huron or Georgian Bay and we'd spend two weeks sort of camping there. And there was ritual involved in that. There were hikes that we would do every single year getting to the sunset every night was a really important ritual for us to sit and watch the sunset. Um, And we also, we would take a lot of sort of detailed interest. My parents were really interested in pointing out sort of the magic of nature to us. Like we would talk about the rock formations and we would hunt for different mushrooms. And, um, you know, when we were younger, we would also like search for, you know, homes that gnomes could live in or fairies could mm-hmm. live in in the mm-hmm. trees. So nature was always something that was animated, mm-hmm. like it was alive to us um, and something that was growing and changing and that we could be a part of as well. So there was a spirit to the natural world um, for us 
too. And that was a, I think a, a really important thing for me as a child to, to have space for in my life. Because I think a lot of kids intrinsically feel that magic in the natural world. Um, and, but it's not always reinforced. And that was something that we really got reinforced in our lives. And that's been a thread that then that has carried through the rest of my life as an adult as well. Mm, that's lovely. That's uh, very true. And so that's a really good segue into what I wanted to ask you next, which, which was all about kind of life growing up for you. Um, and so wh- what were you taught about the world growing up or, and specifically what were you taught about faith and, and hope as a child? I have to say, it's so interesting hearing you get, say my questions back to me <laughs> in like the words that I wrote coming out of your mouth. It's really funny. Uh, anyway, um, yeah, I had a really interesting time thinking in about this question because uh, I and it was actually a really nice reflection because my life growing up was, I would say, quite eclectic faith-wise. So um, both of my parents were Catholic, raised Catholic. Um, And so we were sent to a Catholic school growing when we were, my brother and I, when we were younger. Um, And I think very much, some of that had to do with the fact that it was a better school at the time. But also I think some of it was my parents wanted to give us some sort of foundation in faith but they always saw it, and my mom used to say this, as a place to start. And then where we wanted to go from that was a part of our own journey. So my parents were not dogmatic Catholics at all, <laughs> even though we went to a Catholic school. All of the uh, kind of more conservative aspects of the faith were things that we were untaught at home as well. And I grew up in a household that really encouraged questioning. As kids, we were really allowed to speak our minds and give our opinions. And so that also translated into how I interacted with that kind of part of that faith in school is I was always the one with my hands up being like, but what about this? But does this make sense? I don't think this, you know? Um, And so that sense of exploration was really encouraged, even though we were sent to this really kind of uh, traditional religious school in some ways. The flip side of that, though, I also think I really enjoyed being in a Catholic school for the reason that faith and the exploration of spirituality was a part of our everyday life Mm. in school. Um, We got to study like these, you know, epic stories about people and, and, and God and like what the meaning of life was from like a young age. And, um, I think I was a child that very, was very intuitive and very in touch with kind of my deeper feelings. And so there was space for the exploration of that in school And that was, I think, a really good thing for me Mm. in some ways. And I also happened to go to a really small school. It was uh, a publicly funded Catholic school, but there were only like 100 kids from kindergarten to grade eight. And we we our school was right next to a basilica. So a huge Catholic church. And our playground was um, the parking lot of the church. 
So there very much was no separation <laughs> between like school and that like big place of worship. It was like directly connected. Um, and I think that that was another thing that was really cool for me as a kid is I was present in sacred spaces all the time. Like we would go to the church for, you know, we'd have mass at school. We would have like Advent celebrations. We would go into the Basilica and have like our tiny little school at the front of the Basilica having mass together. We would go there for rituals like communion and, you know, uh, reconciliation, like confession, that kind of a thing. Um, but we would also just go for other reasons. So there was a sense of like to learn about church history or things like that. There was a sense of ownership though, that we had over that sacred space. Like it was ours to be in because we were a part of it in our everyday lives. And I think that that was, that was a really important thing for me too, is that there was space held for spirituality. There was space held for those sacred acts that was in my life every day. And I think on, like all of this is things that I would not consciously have registered as a child, but looking back, I think was really important to me because when I kind of moved on from that into high school, I didn't go to a Catholic school anymore. I transferred to a public school. And I think I really, again, on a subconscious level, spent a lot of time searching for spiritual space after that um i i was kind of funny i i was thinking about this like in high school i i was always kind of attracted to and ended up hanging out a lot with evangelical christian kids and i think even though that wasn't a faith that i personally could embrace the fact that these kids were living with faith as an active part of their life I think was really drawing for me Hmm. that faith in spirituality was within everything that they did. And I didn't have that anymore in my life. And so I think I, I spent a lot of time searching for ways or trying to connect with people who had that, even though I didn't have it for myself in a tradition that was, uh, I think reflective of me or felt connected to me at the time. Right, right. I have a feeling that this theme and concept of sacred space and what created and held sacred space is something that that might that might come back uh, as we continue yeah. our discussion here. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly, as in having well known you for as long as I have, uh, that's really interesting to think about where that potentially came from at that early yeah. age. Yeah. So I I, I wonder if. It, it maybe is is a part of what you were just just describing, but if, if you can describe in more detail another like an experience when you were young that you can think of, uh, where you really had to rely on faith or, or hope or, or a sense of feeling of where faith would have grown within you, um, and and what what did what did that mean to to you and or impact you as you I guess continued your journey. So I, I think that the best way that I can answer this question is I don't think I would say there was like a grand moment where like there was a disaster and I, you know, had to believe that everything was going to turn out right or whatever. Right. But I think 
as I've kind of talked about, as in sense, I was a sensitive kid. I was an intuitive kid and young person, and I was a person that was, I think, very open to this sense of there being something greater in the world because of that all the time in my life and searching that out. There were so many small moments in my life where I think I felt that connection to something bigger. You know, things as simple as like sitting on the beach in Port Elgin in McGregor Point Provincial Park and watching those incredible sunsets. Like even now, having traveled like to lots of different places, I still think they're some of the best sunsets I've ever seen in the world. And just the feeling of that, that power of nature and that awe of being in nature connects you to that sense of something bigger. Um, I think, you know, another thing that was a part of my family is even though we didn't have a, like, you know, we weren't traditionally religious in any way tradition was really important in my family um and tradition became ritual in my families my my parents we didn't have any extended family near us so my parents were really um intentional about creating our own family traditions so that we felt like we had some sort of sense of those rituals in our lives Mm -hmm. so like really simple things like we would go to church on christmas eve that was like the one thing my mom loved christmas eve services so we would go and we would walk home always from the church. It was like probably about a 20 minute walk to our house. And there was something that was just so special to me about it being so quiet. And like usually back then before it was like intense climate change, we had snow. <laughs> so it was like walking through when it, like the neighborhood when it was snowing, when it was quiet, everybody was mm. in their homes and having this like incredible sense of peace, you know, that yeah. that everything in the world was maybe okay yeah. for a few moments was I think something that that also was, yeah, just another experience that really connected me with that idea that there was something something bigger i i remember once as well like uh when we were in i guess it was like seventh or eighth grade when you do like confirmation um so confirmation if you like is this it's somewhat similar to the idea of like a bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah if right. you're right. if you're jewish so it's the idea that you affirm your faith that you're accepting the tenets of this faith and you do it kind of around the age of 13 13, and it was super funny for me because like we didn't have an option to like opt out or it would have been really weird in the culture of our school to like opt out (laughs) so um we did it but I like knew even at that age that I actively could not accept all the tenets of what I was saying so like there's a the Apostles' Creed, like this big long prayer, right? That you yes. have to say that yeah. says like, I believe blah, 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 blah. And I just didn't say the parts that I knew I didn't believe. <laughs> so I affirmed the parts of it that I like thought that I could like connect to like, and then the other parts I just like didn't say. So the- I, I just have to say though that to what you said earlier, that sounds exactly like the the child you were describing. That I'm going to say whatever I think and speak my opinions, and you know, the priest be damned. <laughs> no. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's actually probably what I felt like. Um, but I, I just remember a moment though in that ceremony, 
where it was after, it was right as like the priest was like blessing all of us. And I remember there being this gust of wind that came through the cathedral at the time or the basilica at the time. And it had, because it was like decorated for it, it had all these like banners hanging from the ceilings. And it just like whipped all the banners and started moving them and then like disappeared. And like, I don't know what caused it. Maybe someone walked in mm-hmm. the, the <laughs> church at that time. But I just remember in that moment, like being like, you know, when you get that, like those chills from something like that, because it was just like, we went through this like ritual and then all of a sudden there was like movement in the universe around us. And that felt like really special too. So I think these are all small moments, but for me, they were potent. Mm -hmm. Like they really made me feel like, okay, there's something more that's going on here, right? There's something bigger than just me in this world. And I think that's where that curiosity really came from because I, I felt all of that so deeply. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's lovely. I, I wonder a slight different question than the one I was about to ask you, but I wonder if when you think about this now, you were just describing so many experiences that I think really do touch on the idea of sacred space mm. and, and holding that. Um, so thinking also about sacred space, I'm curious to know how your relationship with faith then evolved kind of from that foundation and where you went to your, to where you are, are now. But I'm also curious to know when the idea of sacred space became something that you would have been present with. And aware of. Huh. When you say sacred space being something I was present or aware of, can you describe more about what you mean? You wouldn't have, as you described, kind of been aware of going through these experiences as a child that sacred that you were in sacred spaces or that you were a part of sacred spaces. Well, I don't know that that is true because like a, a church is a sacred space. True. Right? It's very actively a sacred space. You go there to perform rituals. You go there when you need to pray or to ask forgiveness or to celebrate life. Right? Like it, it is a space that's defined for that. So I think that was always kind of, I was definitely always aware from that of that. And I think I, I always liked those types of spaces because it felt like they were places where you could have big feelings and you could ask big questions Mm. that I didn't feel like I could necessarily do all the time or in my everyday life. Mm. Um, And I would also say that like I spent a lot of time in churches when I was younger as well, because my mom's from Montreal and we would, uh, my grandmother still lived there growing up and as a fun thing to do, (laughs) I'm using air quotes as I say this, my mom used to take us to see all of the churches in Montreal because 
there's some really gorgeous like historical churches there. And then on the other side of that, my father uh, grew up in the Netherlands. He's from the Netherlands. And um, the town where he grew up and where my grandparents, um, like his parents lived as well, had a big, huge cathedral in it as well. And so when we would go to Holland to visit them, we'd always go to this cathedral because it um, was also where my, my dad was a, a choir boy growing up. He sang in a children's choir, and that was the church that he sang in. And I just remember so potently feeling a connection to ancestry in hmm. places like that. You know, it, it was really impotent in Europe because in the cathedrals there, like, the floors of that cathedral was graves of people that had been buried. So you're walking from like stone to stone on the floor and you can read like this person died in like 14, whatever. So Hmm. there's like a sense of history there of being connected to the arc of history, you know, and, and back in history as well, like churches were places where life was lived even more so than they are now. Like, People drove carts and horses through churches because it was like the most efficient way to get across a square. People like were buying and selling goods at the back of churches, right? Like it was the marketplace, <laughs> right? So like because most of the time people didn't even understand because like especially in Catholic churches, mass was in Latin most of the time. Nobody <laughs> knew what was being said. So like that sense of history that I felt connected to there was something else that I think felt special and the way that I would articulate that now as an adult is that it connected me in time and space Mm -hmm. to things that were greater than me in just the present moment Mm -hmm. that it connected me to a sense of the past and connected me therefore to the possibility of the future and all of that being present as one I think is what felt really sacred about that Mm -hmm. oh I love that so I know that was kind of a tangent from what you asked, but no, but it's perfect because you're absolutely right. Those those are all sacred spaces, and I think what I'm what I was curious at, which you d- described, is is that how did that understanding of what sacred space was and meant evolve with you? And and so so with that, I guess I maybe jumped ahead and come back a little bit more yeah. and just ask, like, how has your relationship with faith evolved? Um, from that time that you were just describing to to where you are are now like what's still present in your life from that time Um, and perhaps what's what's changed so I don't think that I would say my sense of faith has ever not been an evolution Hmm. I think it's always been in a state of growth because I think that that is just what the journey of faith is as well. Um, but on a practical personal level, like I had talked about in high school, you know, kind of searching, but not having anything that searching continued in university as well in a lot of informal ways. I mean, it's interesting to me. So I, I, I went to school to study theater which is, you know, I can come back to that. But what's originally interesting is that I actually applied 
to go to the University of Toronto where I went to school for religion. <laughs> and then I just never <laughs> ended up studying religion and spirituality because I, I studied theater instead. But there was clearly something in the back of my mind yeah. that yeah. like drew me to that idea. Um, but I started going to the Newman Center, which is the Catholic Student Center on, on campus because I didn't really know another structured faith tradition at that time and it was a pretty liberal community and I it was the first time I went to kind of any sort of rituals by myself and that was something that was really I think a first step in trying to make faith my own without the influence of my family directly around me um and that was really important like i was i that is what happened especially in the later years when i was at university but that was a really sacred time in my week like i didn't have any friends who went to like church on sundays regularly um I was the only one I knew, but that time was really important to me in my week because it was a space where I could, again, perform ritual, be in community doing that, contemplate bigger things. Um, I spent a summer working at the Ignatius Jesuit Center in Guelph, uh, which is a retreat center, a Catholic retreat center there. Um, it's also a working farm and has uh, a network of trails through it as well. They're really big on environmental restoration and also the connection between spirituality and the environment as well. So that was like, um, my family had been a part of the the farm. Um, we had a farm share for many years growing up. And so I was really attracted to that space. So I spent a summer working there, managing their trail networks, planting, mowing labyrinths into the lawns, you know, painting sacred statues, all that kind of stuff. And that was, I I think, a a really impactful moment for me. And then, you know, coming out of that, I decided to take an environment and spirituality class, which is where (laughs) we ended up meeting. So it was just all of these kinds of like tiny spaces where I was trying to connect with with faith and spirituality. I would say that my journey with being a theater artist is also deeply connected with my searching for faith as well. But I'm just going to shelve that for a second <laughs> because that's like a bigger part of a discussion. Um, and we can come back to that again. But like to kind of finish like what my journey was. So after university, I, I started to get more into sort of yoga as well. I reconnected with that. And actually it's really funny. I used to practice yoga as a child, but I didn't know I was doing yoga. Um, and it's been really interesting journey to come back to this later, but I've realized when I was six years old, I used to get up really early in the morning and my parents taught me how to turn on the TV so I could entertain myself so I wouldn't like wake them up. And I used to watch PBS because that was like, I was only allowed to watch TVO and PBS. Streaming from Buffalo. Yes. Which (laughs) if you are, grew up in Southern Ontario or Western New York, you understand what both those channels are, but basically like public broadcasting channels. And, um, PBS used to have a morning yoga practice on tv and 
it was led by this woman who wore these like really colorful unitards and had this like long braided hair and I would turn it on and I just thought it was really cool and she was like stretching and things like that so I just did the practice with her and then like years later I was yeah when I started doing yoga I was like oh that's what I was doing um but yeah I so I practiced yoga as a six-year-old but then I got back into it when uh sort of after university as well and I did a teacher training I did a, a really different yoga teacher training than I think a lot of people do my training was like a year-long training that was very rooted in traditional yoga philosophy as well and in the idea of yoga as a spiritual practice and not just a physical one and I remember in the philosophy classes that we had feeling for the first time like I suddenly had language to describe what I had always felt was true hmm. about us as human spiritual beings and the stuff that yoga teaches about so yoga fundamentally is a practice of connecting our individual selves with something that's greater than ourselves the word yoga translates to union or to yoke to join things together so it's joining what is impermanent with what is permanent right with um, individuality with universality right and it's finding that space where that's possible for us which is why it's such a powerful practice when so many people come to it because that's actually the heart of it right not the physical practice um but for me it was just the teachings of yoga are so ancient like the vedic texts are some of the oldest spiritual texts that we have in existence on the planet and so there's something just so clear about the way that they talk about the, that connection between us and the universe. There's something that's so simple about it in some ways. Uh, and the one thing I think that also really connected me there was the teaching that yoga has that the universal, that, that God, if you want to say that, that spirit is found within, yeah. not outside of us. It's not about searching and reaching and striving for something that you're not connected with, that it actually is through you that you can find that greater sense of meaning. Yeah. And, and that had been my personal experience, I would say, my whole life in all of these things that I described to you, yeah. these everyday moments that I felt that spirit of the universe within me. And that's what yoga taught me. And yoga teaches about you know, how, how we are physically, how we are mentally, how we are emotionally is how we are spiritually as well, hmm. right? It's a whole, our whole beings are involved in our spirituality. And that's also something that I feel like I had sensed on a, on a personal level for so long, but isn't always taught and is sometimes actually frowned upon in certain lineages of faith traditions. And so that felt liberating, for me. Um, and that became, I think, life-changing for me as well to, to really feel like, oh, okay, now, like I realize I'm not alone in feeling and experiencing these some things. 
actually people for thousands of years have been like experiencing and practicing and, and creating rituals around these same ideas and that it was something I could grow from and through and with as a person. And that felt really special. Um, and then kind of the next step from that, that came beyond that was several years after that, we in our lives had gone through a pretty challenging time. I had suffered a pretty big burnout at work Um, your mother became sick and eventually passed away. And I think there was a lot of, at that point, I didn't have, I hadn't had a regular spiritual practice for a while. Um, and I think we also weren't practicing yoga regularly, I think in, in a community, because I think financially that was just difficult for us at the time. Yeah. So I, I started to feel really disconnected and I, I felt like I couldn't find that connection to something greater than myself through myself at that time. And I, I, I think I felt pretty lost because it, we were going through huge monumental shifts in our life as well, which change who you are. And I felt like I needed support in that. Um, and that was when I came across or we came to the Unitarian Universalist Church. Um, so, like, funny story again. Like, going back to when I was in high school, I had actually... I was hoping you were going to say this, and if not, I was going to ask you. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like a really, it's a really cool story. Um, yeah, so I had heard about Unitarian Universalism when I was in high school, but the joke of all this is that I thought it was a fake religion because one, I, I had taken a quiz online um, in class one day. We were finished our work and we were in like the computer lab. I think this was for math class. And so while we were like killing the hour, our teacher had given us a list of like all these online quizzes that you could take. And one of them was this religion selector quiz, which is called the Beliefomatic, which still exists online. And I, it sounds really hokey because it's called Beliefomatic but it's a really really good quiz that it's 25 questions they're multiple choice and it basically goes through all of the the questions about what you believe about the spirit of the universe what you believe happens after you die what do you if you do you believe in eternal punishment like hell do you believe like Hmm. what kind of relationship do you have with like a spiritual leader and it ranks at the end of it like out of like, I want to say like 50 or more faiths, right? Your compatibility level with them. And for me, I got something like 97 or 98% compatible with Unitarian Universalism. But like, I had never heard of it before. And it sounded like a fake religion online that you just like got where you would get like ordained to like perform (laughs) your friend's weddings at like, you know, the Universal Life Church or something like that, right? And so I dismissed it because I didn't know what it was. But then through you, um, your family has had a deep connection with the Unitarian Church for a long time. Your grandma's been a member for 50 plus years. Your stepmom is like a 25 year plus member with the Unitarian Universalist Church. And so through you, I, I sort of realized in your family that this church actually was a legit thing and had a history of itself. And... In that time when I was searching for something, I think I was kind of like, okay, you know, 
it doesn't feel like traditional, you know, I, I didn't feel like going back to Catholic, a Catholic situation felt connected with me. I didn't feel like, uh, another sort of traditional Christian church felt connected with me. Yoga wasn't, I couldn't experience the fullness of that by going to a yoga class. So it wasn't like enough there. So we decided to try this church out and you and I both know this and it's the experience that so many people have when they come to a Unitarian church for the first time is you sit down, you hear that sermon and you start to cry because it felt like home, right? It felt like, suddenly there was this community where everything that I believed in was okay. All of the questions that I had ever asked were okay. And you were encouraged to explore them more. And we didn't have to agree on the outcome of any of that questioning. There's no dogma in Unitarianism. It's, it's not about our community isn't based on us believing the same things. Our communication community is based on choosing to live life in the same principles. Mm -hmm. And that just felt so important to me. And it could combine all of the different aspects of the eclectic spirituality that I had experienced over my life in one thing that suddenly gave me rituals and language and names and words to put to all that experience and that felt really important and really li- like liberating. And so that became where we made a spiritual home. Yeah. You know, it's, I, I absolutely remember that experience with you as well. And as, as you're, you're describing it here shortly after describing your experience, when you first came to yoga, I'm, I'm struck by a parallel of having the reaction that you had when you first came to both of those traditions. I'm just curious what you make of that. Is that, is that something that you felt or is that just something that kind of came to me in your describing of this story? Like, do I think those situations were similar or those experiences were similar? Yeah. Like, is there a parallel of that kind of coming into that new, I don't know what to describe it as, but finding a new, faith center or home and language for the first time. I think I wouldn't say, even though it was new to me, I wouldn't characterize it as new. I I think, so there's a, um, a Kirtan artist. Kirtan is, uh, the practice of chanting or using music as a part of yoga. There's a Kirtan artist, a very famous one called Krishna Das. And I love how he describes the language. So chanting in, in yoga is done in Sanskrit. And the way, and you do mantras. So these mantras are sort of repetitive. At, at a time, they could be considered prayers that have go back thousands and thousands of years in yoga. And so they're still performed today in the, by these modern artists to modern music and with modern melodies and stuff like that. But the way he describes the practice of chanting is that these mantras, these prayers are written on our heart. And every time that we chant them, we're brushing the dust off of our hearts. We're brushing. 
So it's already there in us. We're just reconnecting with it. And so that's what that experience, I would say, coming to yoga, like that coming to Unitarian Universalism felt like to me was here's the brushing off of the dust of something that was already there that maybe I couldn't name before, that I couldn't see, that I couldn't articulate, but it was already there and suddenly... I had a way to really connect with it. Um, and it was a, like a part of me came to life because of that. Yeah, I, I think that's, I, I guess that. that's why yeah. both of those would seem connected. Both of those did that for me. So I want to now ask you to reflect a little bit on your your adult millennial life and, and <laughs> questions that you you again ask ask everyone that you've invited into this podcast. Just to describe the work that you do and and what does it mean to you and why do you do it? So I thought about this question and I I think I'm going to answer this in a different way than a lot of people would. And I think that's because I have had, um, like, I have had eclectic, an eclectic spiritual experience. I have had an eclectic career path, I would say, over the last, like, 12 years or so. So I, the work that I do in the world, I would say, has taken the form of many jobs. But, so I think it was, like, six or seven years ago, our brother-in-law, Julio, we were at a restaurant with you and your sister, Leslie, and a couple of our your other siblings. And out of the blue, Julio asked this question to everyone at the table, which was, what do you think your purpose in life is? <laughs> which is like a really uh, big question to have as part of dinner conversation. Um, but he meant it so genuinely. And, I, and he had really been considering this for himself at the time. And I remember be like pushing back immediately and being like, I can't answer that question. Like, I need more time to think about it. But what was so fascinating, and, and we all kind of did that, was that within about five minutes, everyone actually had an answer. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Because yeah. Yeah. it just created that space by him answering that question for something to bubble up in all of us is truth. And I I remember that what I answered was that I thought my purpose was to help people learn more and become more connected to themselves so that they could then connect more to the world. And I would say that that is the work that I do in the world. And to take like a step beyond that, to help people then connect more to the world so that they can live the life they're meant to live in the world. So for me over like the past 11 or 12 years, that's taken a lot of different forms, right? Like that's been being a theater artist. That's being, being a yoga teacher. Um, that's being a, a coach as well. Um, and then that's, also now become a part of creating this space with this podcast but the mission in all of that if you want to call it that has been that that same driving force 
Oh, wow. So thank you, Julio, for asking that question. <laughs> I think uh, uh, that just takes me back to that. I believe we were in Ithaca, were yeah. we not? Yes. Yeah. Also a very sacred place for for me. For you. Yeah, for um, sure. I wonder, I, wanna, I do want to ask you about something that you brought up a little bit earlier about um, theater, I believe you were talking about, yeah. was, was important to this, to this journey. So I, 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 I want to see if, if maybe we can go there here with this question, but w- what you just described in, in your work's purpose and certainly what I've seen of, I mean, having known you and been your partner for the past many, many years, Faith and hope have been central to you and your work for as long as I've known you. Mm-hmm. And much in the way that you just described, that's manifested in a lot of different jobs. Yeah. But it has always been a through line in just intrinsically who you, who you are. And and I saw that even in, in theater, and you didn't mention this, but you were also involved in dance right, previously. Right, and, yeah. and And while not a you know, quote, professional job while a part of the Unitarian Church, you volunteered a lot. Yeah. Um, and you were part of a, a young adult group that you played a pretty integral role in in, in shaping and, and leading. So it's sort of faith has been in all aspects of so much of your work in the past decade um, and, and probably beyond from what I've observed. So I, I'm curious to, to you, like, how do you think that this idea of faith and hope has influenced your own professional journey. And has this been, has faith and hope been something that has influenced what you've called to do as much as been influenced by what you've done? You're right. It has been a part of everything that I have done, whether it's again been conscious or not Mm. for me. Mm. Theater for me, again, like I talked about as a kid, being a kid that experienced a lot of deep emotions, that thought about deep questions, that explored deep things. Theater was something I gravitated towards very young because it provided a space, again, you want to talk about sacred spaces like you mentioned before, where those types of things could be explored. Mm. Yeah. Where... You could ask big questions. You could have really big feelings in a safe way um, because it wasn't your real life. And so I think that that was a refuge for me for a long time where I could do that stuff. Um, And it provided community as well, the same way that faith often provides community too. And so that was really important to me. And I think the thing, the other part of theater that I really liked as well is that it involved ritual. Mm. Every night you went through something you with a cast and with an audience, right? You put on different clothes. You entered a different environment. Yeah. And you went through an experience together yeah. that if the theater is good, by the end of, you and the audience both come out changed. Mm. So for me, that's like such a deeply spiritual, or it's so, so much mirroring a spiritual experience as well. So I think it felt like a spiritual experience for me yeah. too. Um, and I, I think that's also something that's not articulated about theater a lot, but is felt 
by both performers and audience members a lot, which is why people want that as a career or continually seek it out and go back to it um, as like audience members. Um, we all know, we've all been to shows that have moved us yeah. so deeply that they have that feeling of spiritual experience. They make you think about the world differently. They shake you at a core level. Yeah. And that's really powerful. Um, yeah, and then it explicitly just started becoming more and more a part of uh, my life when I ran a, co-ran a theater company with uh, a friend of mine um, for many years. And I transitioned from acting, which is what I studied at university, into directing more. That all the shows we would produce or create ourselves all had faith as their main <laughs> question. And we just decided yeah. after a while to make it explicit. And so the 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 heart at the 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 question at the heart of all the performances we did was the question of why do you believe what you believe and what would it take for you to give it up? Yeah. Or to say it as I would probably articulate it now, what would it take for you to change? Yeah. And so that that just became what we did as art too. And so that was a present in my theater work. And then I think in yoga, you know, I've already talked a lot about how yoga is about connecting to something greater than yourself at the heart of the practice. And as a teacher, that's always been really important to me to keep present too. Um, so when it's teaching classes to be able to offer that moment for students to feel like they can go deeper, to hold a space for them, to connect with some part of themselves that maybe they can't in their everyday life. And what I found really interesting about that is, and that's also kind of developed more into the coaching work that I did where I worked one-on-one -on -one with artists or um, athletes uh, who wanted support through the performance work they're doing. Um, all of that work is ultimately about connecting deeper to yourself even the work that i've done for the past three years with teenage hockey players who are on like a professional uh career path with their sport has all been about trying to get them to connect deeper to themselves so they have that as a resource and tool when they move forward in their life um yeah is there more am i is there somewhere else somewhere you want me to go with this am i like no, that's very that that's the kind of the first half the other i'm curious if because your journey has of course evolved considerably through that time and yeah. like the through lines being there from theater through explicitly in, in in yoga but i'm curious if you in reflecting how has perhaps your own journey with your understanding of faith been influenced by the work that you have done as much as the other way around. Right. Yeah. So I would say it has just been a journey in understanding that faith needs to be at the core of everything that I do. <laughs> yeah. And I would say that like, and just making that explicit. Yeah. Right. Like I would say the farther that I have gotten away from spirituality and space and faith being a part of the job that I do the less happy I have been in my work, mm. the less healthy I have been in all forms of myself, um, the less fulfilled I have felt. 
And I, I actually think that that's what really led me to burnout hmm. at one point is that I was so, I was so far away from that when I started taking jobs because I felt like I, I was on a career track that I couldn't get off of that. I felt like I would be letting people down or disappointing people if I didn't follow this career path or do this job when I started searching for accolades and affirmation outside of myself through my work um that all led me down the road to burnout Hmm. and so I think it's just really shown me that and I I do like you know Lynn Harrison said this in her interview with me as well like we are fundamentally spiritual beings and for me that's just something that really needs to be present all the time in order for me to be the best that I can be in the world. And so my, I would say career journey has taught me that really deeply more than anything else. And this podcast is just the most explicit form of that (laughs) (laughs) so far. Um, Yeah. So I want to ask you a couple questions now you mentioned this this podcast kind of right at the end and, and I, I want to ask you a couple of questions focused on millennials and and really the subject of this podcast being millennials and and, and faith so you have spent a lot of time over the last couple of years talking to millennials uh, certainly within this project but even beyond that in some of the other work that you have done can you describe a moment in that work that inspired you to create a space for this kind of a dialogue? Mm. What's given you hope in the strength of faith within our generation to do this project? This is a huge question. (laughs) Um, But, okay. So, I guess I'll start by answering what inspired this podcast. So... I have had the idea for this podcast in some loose form for about two, two two-ish years. Um, And it really started for me, you mentioned before, that I was a part of um, kind of co-facilitating a young adult group at the Unitarian Universalist Church, First Unitarian in Toronto, um, where we lived at the time. And... um, one of the things that really struck me was we arrived at that church sort of at a time where there was a lot of other young millennials showing up at the church's doors as well. And that year was 2016. Um, And there was a huge boost in membership in our congregation after the U S (laughs) election. And Uh, of young people and all the people that were coming to the church were very much folks like us who had who were looking for a community that they could lean on and have support from in their life that would also help them explore these deeper questions that were coming up as a result of what felt like huge turmoil that was starting in the world and that for a lot of these folks the traditional faith communities that they came from either weren't fitting anymore or they hadn't grown up with a faith community and were looking for a way to kind of start to explore that on their own um 
yeah. So I ended up having over the course of my two, two, three years, two years co-facilitating that group, just having a lot of deep conversations with people about their exploration of faith. And I, I started doing research about this because it really intrigued me. This idea that people in our generation were really interested in finding spiritual community and connecting spiritually, but that none of the kind of traditional forms of faith institutions were doing it quote unquote for them anymore. Um, so I got really interested in some of the work that was done out of Harvard Divinity School's How We Gather project. And I will give like a big tip off to um, Harry Potter and the Sacred Texts and their hosts, Casper Terkyle and Vanessa Zoltan, who like brought me to that work as well. Um, I became interested in the work that Pew Research out of the U.S. has done looking at faith in varying generations. And one of the most fascinating things that they have found in their research surveying different generations about faith practices is that millennials are considered and often talked about as the most unreligious generation in history because we don't attend church services. We don't, or, or formal faith services, we don't identify with being of a certain faith the way other generations did. We don't do formal prayer practices. We don't do a lot of things that traditional faiths faith has looked like. But we rank the highest of any other generation on experiencing a sense of wonder about the world and of feeling and seeking a sense of spiritual and personal well-being on a regular basis, more than any other generation. It's It's so fascinating. We are also a generation that there's other research out there about our feelings of, of happiness, our feelings of living meaningful lives, our desire to connect with family and friends, our desire to experience love as ranking higher than any other generation over things like power, money, and work. That's intensely spiritual stuff. Right? For a generation that's called unreligious. Think about the questions of meaning that religions and faith has so much trying to get at all the time and everything that you're just talking about speaks exactly to that. Right. Does it not? (laughs) Exactly. Right. And so... Um, and it, it also, I also found that out in the yoga community too. Like when I was teaching, I taught for many years at a, a college um, in Toronto called George Brown. And one of the things that fascinated me was that I would teach a, a physical yoga class. And when people would come up to me after class to ask me questions, more often than not, they asked me a quasi-spiritual question. They wanted to know more about what yoga philosophy said about this. Or what yoga spirituality, there's not, I wouldn't say there's actual yoga spirituality, but from a spiritual perspective, what yoga would say about this. And so there was that desire, even in that gym space where I was teaching, right. you know, these classes too. So all of that kind of inspired me to just, to create this, this podcast space where we could talk about this stuff explicitly. Right where we could ask these questions in the open, where people were given the opportunity to talk about faith, because I don't think a lot of millennials feel like they can do that in a, the very secular society we live in. 
right? Spirituality is something you do away from work. It's something you often do away from your interaction with a lot of your friends, even. It's not something we talk about in our business dealings and the way our government works. And there's lots of good reasons for that. But on the other hand, we can't divorce that from who we are because it's a huge part of who everyone is. And I think that because the millennial generation isn't going to church or shul or temple the way that we used to, we're looking for something to fill that void. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, this felt like a place to start creating that space and having that dialogue in a way that I think a lot of people have been searching for and don't necessarily have in their life. Um, and so that felt important to me. Um, you, you said it right at the end, though, something that I wanted to ask you specifically about. You know, so many millennials don't attend traditional faith communities um, n- now. And, and of course, we know that, you know, throughout so much of, of history, faith and community, and not just faith communities, but faith and the idea of community, have been so deeply intertwined. Yeah. And, and by many accounts, both are seen to be in crisis today. Depending on who you talk to, there's a crisis of faith or there is a crisis of crumbling community. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think of what we're collectively going through right now in a pandemic is really showing how critical and important community is. And yet perhaps some of the structures of community in the past don't exist in the same way. Right. I'm just curious how you think about this, that with both faith and community as something that's potentially in crisis, the work of reimagining what both those two things can be is and will become, I think, an important part of the work of the millennial generation. How, how do you think about that? Do you see faith and community evolving for our generation over the, the coming decades? I know it's a big question. Yeah, I thought a lot about this one when you wrote it too. It was a really, a really good um, question. I, I think faith for our generation is becoming more of a personal thing than it was in the past. Mm. And, and let me, I'll elaborate on what I mean there. I think there's a feeling that your faith and your spirituality is personal to you and not something that is just dictated to you by the traditions of an organized religion. There's a recognition that you have to go on a personal journey to find your own faith and that that involves learning and growth and change. So there's an activeness to Mm. it that I think is different than I think sometimes in past generations where you fell into a religious tradition because that was the community you were in and the way that society works now there's a lot more freedom for people to move outside of that again depending on your level of privilege depending on where you live in the world depending on a lot of factors admittedly but the internet has allowed that to expand a lot globally. And so, 
Yeah, I think there's this sense of developing personal faith, which is really important because I I do believe that faith is unique to everyone. We are all unique beings. So how the universal spirit or God or whatever you want to call it shows up for you is going to be different than the way it shows up for anyone else. Hmm. Right? It, it just it fundamentally has to be that way. I think Mm -hmm. even people that are a part of traditional religious structures have a personal sense of faith. Yeah. Right. They have personal beliefs. And so I think that that is just becoming more explicit with our generation than it was in the past. Um, I think the idea of community, I mean, we are actively seeing that evolve during this pandemic as well, where online communities are being legitimized like so much more broadly than they were in the past where there's an understanding that you can really connect with people on a deep level over the internet via instagram (laughs) you know um through podcasts through all that and that they really do provide a feeling of being a part of something greater because Especially if you live in a community where you don't feel like your sense of faith or what you believe or it can be outwardly expressed or you don't see it in the culture that's around you, it allows you to get beyond that and recognize that you're not alone in the world of believing or feeling or questioning these things. And that's really important. But I would also say that another thing this pandemic is telling us is that that does not substitute for in-person interaction. Yeah. Yeah. We are a species that desperately wants to be in contact with other people for the majority of us, yeah. <laughs> I would say in one form or another, or in, or in, you know, at least have the ability to have that at certain times. Yeah, and That's, I think, really important because being in community in person allows you to really embody that experience, right? There's something different about an experience, and I'm not saying better or worse, but just different about being in a room with people and doing something together, right? It's why we go to concerts and don't just listen to Spotify, Yeah. right? It's why you and I have talked about the difference of in theater show live in person than just watching something on your own. Right. Or like even the experience of going to a cinema to watch a movie versus watching it on Netflix or on your computer. Right. Right. There's something about having a communal experience that's really important to our sense of being seen as people and our sense of being understood. And so I think that the work of our generation is how to bring those two things together, Hmm. how to bring that online together with the in-person, because both of them are fundamentally important and both of them are going to continue to be fundamentally important moving forward. So I think for groups and businesses and communities that are trying to build a sense of community it's understanding how to marry those two in what you do and for us as individuals it's searching for how to balance the two how to build create seek online communities and also find personal community as well Hmm. that's fascinating Mm -hmm. yeah uh, I think there's a lot, a lot there to think about. I, I'm, I'm curious 
we're living through in living through this pandemic we are we are definitely being pressed for our collective resolve and resiliency mm-hmm. and i'm wondering for you personally where do you find the resiliency to stay faithful through all of all of what life brings us um i think in people hmm. in hearing stories all the time of people growing and changing and evolving so that they could do things, become things, create things that they never thought was possible. And that like is true of like the celebrity that you watch the Instagram live of to my neighbor, right? There, I find people fundamentally inspiring. Um, because even in really small ways, growth is just inspiring to me and everybody has a story of growth or change. And there's something about that, that that's at the heart of who we are as humans, that we are built to grow and change and evolve. And that is really where I see hope and, and where that connects to millennials for me is that. I actually think that we are a fundamentally hopeful generation. I know that we're often called a cynical generation and we're often called a selfish generation. But if you look at what we have created in our lives, despite the times in which we have come of age, it tells to me a very different story. Mm. You know, so many of us came to age in the financial crisis in 2008, right? So we didn't have job security. We couldn't get jobs if we didn't have them. Um, And we certainly couldn't think about the financial security that our parents had in terms of being able to own homes or save money for retirement, you know, all that kind of stuff. We have been the inheritors, as much been talked about, of the climate crisis and are looking down having children or raising children in a world of environmental disaster Hmm. in some ways, we've also come of age during some of the biggest political and social unrest in recent history. Yet in all of that, so many millennials are breaking apart the traditional ways of working and creating new things are finding avenues to build businesses, are looking at new ways to teach their kids and raise their kids, are coming up with alternative living situations so that they can create family units, you know, to raise families in. You look at the development of going back to sharing culture, right? Like property doesn't mean the same things to us anymore. Like Owning things doesn't mean the same. There's a sharing culture that's coming back into into life. There's creativity in this generation to solve the problems that have been coming at us, that have been present with us our whole adult life. That's resilience. That's what makes us resilient. That's what's going to make us be able to handle the changes that are coming in the world that we can't even imagine right now. Right? Because we have, 
we've had to adapt and be creative from the beginning. Yeah. And there's a hopefulness in that. Right. That's how I see that. I think that's really true. There's a belief that we can make something better. And we get a lot of backlash and millennials have gotten a lot of pushback for the fact that we're demanding change (laughs) of traditional institutions in many ways. But I also think that's because that's bleeding into how we see the world. Yeah. Right? That that's bleeding into people's politics. I think our generation is one that's pushing for more justice, more inclusion, more um, accessibility for uh, many, many different people because so many more millennials have experienced what it's like not to have any of that. Because we didn't have the same securities that maybe other generations did. And maybe, you know, different generations see that, see this the same from their perspective in the past. But I do think that millennials have had to come of age in a unique time in history. And it's meant that we've had to become more self-reliant, more creative and think outside the box. And that to me has been really positive. And I think that that gives me a lot of hope for our ability to grow, our ability to take on challenge, and our ability to make the world a better place. place i think to to shift into these last couple of questions which are ones that you 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 also ask everyone that you have interviewed here on this this podcast and and the first is around definition of faith so miriam webster's dictionary defines faith in three ways it's as an allegiance or duty to something a belief or trust in something greater than yourself something you believe or know beyond a shadow of a doubt. And so I want to ask in your life, those three things, what do you feel a duty and allegiance to? What do you put your faith or trust in that's bigger than yourself? And what do you know or believe beyond a shadow of a doubt? So let's take these one at a time. (laughs) Um, I feel a duty or allegiance to the world. I feel a duty to show up in the world, to be a part of this global community and to use whatever I have to contribute to making the world a better place. Yeah. That's, that's it. (laughs) Thank you. And what do you put your faith in that is bigger than yourself? I've talked about this in a couple different forms in these questions already. But in the fundamental goodness of humanity. That I believe that 
at our core, we are love. And that in our greatest moments of challenge, people turn to love first. Almost instinctive in some ways. That's happened in this pandemic on a mass scale. Like connecting with each other through challenge is what we want to do instinctively. And I think that I think that 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 trust in the fact that we are loving good people at our core and seeing that play out over and over and over again in the world just feels so huge. Hmm. It feels beyond words to describe being a part of that. It, it's such a blessing. Yeah. And I'm constantly in awe of it. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Um, and then your, the last question was... The last one was, what do you believe in beyond a shadow of a doubt? That the heart of the universe is love. Um, to put that another way, that love is the driving force of this universe. It is the force that is pushing everything forward. Mm. That is evolving us. Um, and I think that that's connected with my previous answer of my belief in human goodness, belief that love is at the core of all of us. I also think that we as humans intrinsically know that. And that's why all of our stories and myths and songs and dreams are always all about love. Yeah. Right? It's that one thing that's bigger than all of us that we all connect with. It's the thing that is in at the core of all faiths. There's a reason for that, yeah. I believe. And... I've had some really incredible personal experiences where I've been able to see that. Um, I didn't really talk about this in the, the, the beginning when I was talking about my, my experience of faith growing up, but my grandmother, um, my mother's mother, was actually a really important person in my life in terms of shaping my views on faith. She was an incredibly spiritual person and a huge seeker in personal development. Very traditionally Irish Catholic raised, but like evolved that herself over the course of her life. Never stopped studying um, mysticism and Buddhism and yoga and like all of this, you know, um, all of these paths were things that she continually kept searching down and and that was hugely inspiring to me. But um, about a year and a half ago, she passed away. And when she was dying, you and I had the chance to visit her in the hospital. And she was remarkably present yeah. in what her experience was of transitioning out of life. And one of the things that she said in, in a moment was that she could feel the spirit of love pouring into her. 
and that she could feel love coursing through her as she was transitioning out of life. And it just felt like a, like a moment where I got a glimpse behind the curtain, you know, where I could see the dust brushed off of something just for a moment. You know, as she went from the personal to the universal. Oh, that's so beautiful. Um, so that, the heart of the universe is love. That's, that's what I know. Well, thank you for sharing that story. That was really beautiful. And I, takes me back with you during that time. Mm-hmm. And it was a very special time and thank you for everything that you've you've shared through this conversation so that there's there's one last one last question and it's something that you've again asked everyone that has been on this podcast with you to share a practice that you do on a regular basis that connects you with your faith mm-hmm. so how did you how did this practice come into your life and what does it, what does it mean to you? So I think this one's going to surprise you. Okay. Um, because I, I thought a lot about this because I have had several spiritual practices that I have done over the course of my life, but I would say that spiritual practices in my life come and go. They, I do them for a season when they're you know, they, they're meaningful in my life and maybe they might be put aside then for a while and something else will come in. Like I have done journaling practices where I reflect on like a sacred passage that's Mm -hmm. written. I have done consistent meditation practices for a period of time. I've done practices of, um, reading quotes from spiritual teachers in the morning. Um, I have done, yeah, just like a lot of different things. So I, I, I mean, I could talk about any one of those, but I realized that there's one spiritual practice that has been consistent in both of our lives for a very long time and through all of these. And that is our giving thanks before we eat. And yeah, so that, that practice started for us. Um, if you don't mind me saying us, cause it is one we do collectively together. Yes. Um, oof, 10 years ago, 11 years ago now, when we were, we did a hundred mile diet yeah. where we, for six months had just ate food that we could locally source from within a hundred miles of us. And as a way to kind of connect to that as a practice in our lives, we, every night before we would eat, we started reading quotes out of a cookbook that we were using at the time um, called Simply in Season. And every page of Simply in Season on the bottom has a little prayer or reflection or sometimes just a story about a food producer or a situation globally where food is of an issue. Um, And that was really important and made us, I think, feel, I'll speak for myself, made me feel really 
connected to um, something greater through food, which also made me feel connected to the seasons and made me feel connected to nature and made me feel connected to the larger world. And so that practice continued to evolve for us over the past 10 years. And now includes a bunch of other different things. There's always the sort of giving thanks for the meal, but there's also, I think, a naming of gratitudes uh, that goes along with it. It Things reflecting on things that have happened in our day, conversations we've had, people that have come into our lives and offering thanks for that. And I think there's always a time where each of us usually offer a prayer of gratitude for something that we have in our lives to help us through challenge as well as a way to name that challenge. Um, and then there's always a section of naming this is more recent, but naming people that have crossed our minds during the day or that we want to offer love or support to. And then it always concludes with a prayer of thanks for the people in our lives, people that we don't know that need love and support and thanks for the love that is the spirit of the universe. Yeah. And what's interesting about that closing is that closing, I evolved from a wishing practice that I used to do as a child. Hmm. So you know how like people would tell you to wish upon a star. So yeah. whenever I would see a star and I'd make a wish, I would pray for the safety, the happiness, the health, and the love of all those I loved and all those I, that needed love. Really? Yeah. I never knew that. And that is now what we say as part of that closing for yeah. our prayer. Oh. So it's kind of grown and evolved, but I, I think it's really been important to us because, and important to me because it's that moment of us checking in together during the day at a time when we're going to sit down and eat and reflecting on what we're grateful for, for our day and the people and the ideas that we've interacted with, and then offering that space to send our love back into the world yeah. after what we've received. And it's just a really nice moment for us to connect every evening. So that's, oh. yeah, that's been our most, my most consistent spiritual practice. Probably ever. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Yeah. Giving thanks before you eat doesn't have to look any traditional way. We've evolved it into something for ourselves. And I think Richard Wagamese, the Ojibwe writer, said that he has a quote where he says, if the only prayer that you ever say in your life is thanks that is enough and I think it's important to make space in your life for that and what better time for us to do it than before we eat and we receive a gift from nature from the world from all the people that brought it to our table that really allows us to live and grow <laughs> and be nourished that's lovely <laughs> And I think, like, you started, it has evolved much as our own journey through faith has evolved. Yeah. It's a perfect way to close this wonderful conversation. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. 
And you can find my spiritual practice, Giving Thanks Before You Eat, in the Spiritual Practice Library at KeepingFaithPod.com, where you can listen to me guide you through it and try it out for yourself. This is the last episode of this season of Keeping Faith. We'll be back in the fall with more conversations about faith, hope, and what, from God to Google, you put your trust in in this uncertain world. And maybe one or two surprises, too. In the meantime, you can read our blog, catch up on episodes, and try out spiritual practices all on our website. And stay in touch with us on Facebook or Instagram at Keeping Faith Pod. And if you want to reach out with thoughts on an episode or this season, send us a message at hello at keepingfaithpod.com. We'd love to hear from you. This season was produced by Ron Kelly and Marin Smith. Our music is by Ron Kelly, and our design is by Barbara Kowalski. And of course, if this podcast spoke to you, you can subscribe, rate, or leave us a review. But most importantly, share it with a friend, family member, or colleague. It's just one more way we can support each other in keeping faith. Thank you so much for being a part of our first season. And until next time, holding you in hope and faith, I'm Marin Smith. See you next season.